Welcome on on to a new episode of my RPG podcast. Today, my good friend Dan is back with me to talk about world building, which is uh, one of my favorite things actually to do in all of RPGs. It's kind of a uh, system agnostic episode, so it's really kind of helpful to anyone out there who's either GM or the like. Uh, me and Dan had actually done some research, and we, pra- we both kind of created documents and bullet points we wanted to go over, but ended up just kind of talking and throwing that all out the window as we were just kind of back and forth tangenting off of each other's ideas. This is a fun uh, episode nonetheless, full of a lot of great detail in there, and so it was great to talk to Dan, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome one and all to a new episode of my RPG podcast. Today, my good friend Dan Wallace is back with me to talk about world building. Dan, welcome back. Oh, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Anytime. All right, Dan, we kind of had an episode before, so we kind of already know a little bit about each other. Let's jump into this. Let's start talking about world building. What's probably the best way to start talking about world building, Dan, in your opinion? Um, We should maybe explain what world building even is, because I think most People who have gotten into role-playing games already uh, have a word attached to their system of choice, so they um, maybe don't care for word bidding that much until they come to the point where they start writing their own campaigns and, and thinking up their own campaigns, and then it suddenly hits you that there's a whole uncreated word out there that needs to be created. Yeah, absolutely. So what is kind of world-building? You did a little research for us. Yes, um, actually, it, um, the, the earliest um, uh, it goes back in history is actually to ancient times where the, the gods and um, were kind of shared universe characters and many writers uh, wrote tales of the gods um, and they were characters that everybody knew and the words they lived in, be it the Hades or uh, whatever parallel dimension there is in northern mythology or Greek mythology were kind of realms and worlds that were already known with populated with known characters. So it was kind of a shared universe for everybody back then. And yes, I think that was probably the first case of, of world building in the sense of a shared universe. And then um, if you look at um, recent times, like the 1920s or so, then you see H.P. Lovecraft, the... Um, horrible racist uh, ass but leaving that aside for now um the uh, uh, horror uh, and fantasy author who um created the dreamlands and the horror worlds that are kind of interconnected so most of his stories actually take place in the same universe and he draws parallels to um lands lost in time like hyperborea which is actually the word of conan the barbarian that we all know um, written by Robert E. Howard, a friend of H.P. Lovecraft. Hmm. And, well, then we have to talk about Tolkien, of course, uh, Middle-earth. Um, there's a whole world besides the, the Lord of the Ring and, uh, obviously, the um, Hobbit. And his son actually published many of the unfinished stories and fragments that took place in this world in the Cimmerian. And, yeah, um, 
mentioning a Shapiro, uh, uh, talking, there's also C.S. Lewis, where uh, the Chronicles of Narnia actually um, have the name of the world that he created. So it was not just a world to have a story take place in, but the world was kind of one of the protagonists and one of the main topics. And ever since then, like all authors of kind of the sci-fi fantasy world have probably thrown themselves headlong into world building if they've been creating kind of unique original content and everybody kind of, I think everybody has this uh, general understanding of like world building. Oh, that's just like creating, you know, world events and gods and stuff like that. But that's kind of become more and more important, especially to us as RPG players, as especially as game masters and uh, dungeon masters, as we want to kind of take our game to the next level, which is making it our own and our character's own is the importance of world building. So Dan, when you're doing world building, any system, you know, system agnostic, where do you like to start? Because I'm kind of of two minds of this. I've done, I do it both ways. I kind of either go, I start with an idea to which then everything branches from. And the idea could be something as simple as an adventure or a figure or an icon. Or I take the very structured route of like, I need to hit up one, two, three, four, five things to justify this world or justify this land or this concept. So do you go structured or do you wait for inspiration? How do you like to do it? That is very genre specific for me. Um, I think it's actually in the GURPS Fantasy, which is the, uh, the world building book in the GURPS universe for fantasy worlds. It actually says that in science fiction worlds, you usually start with a uh, with data about the planets that you are creating and all of that. And uh, in fantasy, that's really not so important because if you're playing a fantasy campaign, it doesn't really matter if you are on a spheroid planet or if it has some other crazy shape and is carried by uh, elephants or whatnot. So it's it's actually genre-specific where I start. Um, I always try to keep the back channels open. So... I usually don't create a world and then to my go to my group and say this is the world and these are the available uh, character types and the available fantasy races that you can choose from. But I usually set out a genre first. So I will be like, okay, we are going to play low fantasy, which means not that much mag magic. Not everything is magic, um, and um, more of the Conan the Barbarian approach. And so, what would you like to play? And then I take feedback from my from my players, and whenever they choose to to choose a character that's interesting to me and that has interesting features, I will um, talking back and forth with them, um, create the whole background in the world for that character. Yeah, you have a very so, sort of inclusive approach where you want your kind of players. You're already thinking about your players. You're already thinking about your audience when creating your world. Um, for me, I, I, I'm trying to do the same thing. I'm trying to keep the world a little bit open. I, I, I really, I'm, I'm now been using this phrase a lot since I've talked to our good friend Jeff Muller of Schrodinger's Ogre. Which, if you, if anybody who didn't listen to the episode with Jeffrey Muller, uh, he explained the concept about when you're running a dungeon or an adventure, and if the party goes left when you want them to go right. Schrodinger Ogre says they don't know that the room that you wanted them to go into or the encounter you wanted them to run into isn't on the left. So you can just plop it in wherever you like, justify it. I, I, I like to take that phrase now and say that kind of like Schrodinger's, uh, you know, 
insert town, Schrodinger's insert, you know, samurai order or cast or whatever. Like if your characters come with something to you, you can find or create a place in your world to put it. So I think the idea for both of us is this idea of a always changing, always nebulous, nebulous world. So there's no super hard rules because whatever the player wants to bring into, we can then improvise and create from there. And not just what the players bring into it, but also what you come up with uh, on the spot. I found a really nice uh, slide deck by uh, Nora K. Jamison, who is also a brilliant author who does really, really good world building. We should put a link in the show notes or something. And uh, she wrote there that um, world building is like an iceberg. It's 10% is visible and 90% isn't. And uh, we should think about the 90% as like the the power stone where we draw our creative game master energies from and but it's 90 percent is hidden so nobody has seen it before so you can change it around whenever you like and um, i can remember one situation where somebody was an npc came in and she was really powerful and doing amazing stuff and helping the uh, characters out and she, as she was kind of walking away one of the players was like but hey who are you and in that moment, she just had to say, well, I'm the queen, and walked out. And uh, I had a whole um, whole family tree for the royal family planned out, and that went out the window in that moment because she had to be the queen of these lands, and then she was. Yeah, so part of RPG world building, uh, as opposed to, let's say, uh, novel world building and video game world building and things like that is the fact that we are trying to be very considerate of the unpredictability of characters whereas we and if we're writing a book or if we're creating a video game we're pretty much giving somebody a railroad a single narrative track to follow so we can have very strict kind of set in stone things so a scenario like that is kind of a perfect conversation we can kind of have about like the the importance of world building with flexibility and elasticity because ultimately you know regardless of what world you create if the, you anticipate like oh i would love a storyline where one person wants to fawn over and fall in love you know romeo and juliet style but they're warring families and stuff like that your characters can ruin that entire experience uh for you by siding with one family and saying kill the other family or uh, killing both families or uh making love with romeo and juliet themselves like Anything can kind of go with the unpredictability that is RPGs. So part of world building is the fact that you have to constantly be able to justify how in world uh, whatever the actions the characters take will happen, which is what I think is a big distinct difference from world building for a novel or something. Like I never consider myself a novelist when I play an RPG. I consider myself just a really well-prepared improviser. Absolutely, and I think the um, Romeo and Juliet with the um, with the um, enemy families um, is actually perfect because uh, how, what does it matter what your original intent for the story was if you already know all the important players in the families, you know what they are doing, you know what their resources are, you know um, where they stand in society, you know what their job is, you know what they can do, and you know all of this. They cannot go off the rails because there are no rails. There's a big flat ground of of knowledge that you have built building this world and building this part of the world and the society. So, if they go to somebody and you already know that they are kind of into um, scheming and things like that, hey, they've found the perfect match. And if you if they choose to to uh, get there, hey, we should kill the others to the paranoid one in the family. You already know that they will not believe the player characters, and so 
it's already done for you. You don't have to think about plot if you have the world. That's kind of my take on it. Yeah, actually, that's almost 100% to what I believe as well. When I ever speak to anybody and they're talking about like, man, you know, being a, a game master or being a dungeon master seems so scary. You have to know everything. You have to build everything. I'm like, no, you just really need to know the feeling or the concept or kind of the, the intent of the world you're in, the town you're in, the association, organization, religion, whatever it is. Is that all the minutia? And then you can act accordingly. So like a, a direct example I can make in my case is, you know, uh, in my worlds, I, I'm always drawing from my own real life experiences, and my experiences with the world around me. So I, if I create, you know, a criminal organization, if I want to fasten this organization off of, you know, the Italian mafia and, and stuff like that, I know that this organization will have a strict kind of structure and tradition and they'll have strict rules as to what can and can't happen. And they might treat their enemies with far more kindness if I was dealing with another organization which is more like guerrilla guerrilla tactics more like cartel and contra where they're ruthless and more aggressive so the same crime happening in two different parts of my world will elicit different reactions from the crime organizations because of the structures they have I don't have the rule written I have the name for the rules but they're still nebulous like if I speak to the you know the the code of honor of this sort of mafioso uh, family I don't really know what the code of honor is. I don't have it written down, but I know what the concept is. So then I can always reference that in my world. And then later, if some reason my people do become part of the mafia uh, or el muerta, as I called them, uh, then they will learn, obviously, the tenets of the code of honor for el muerta. I really love how you went from your personal experience, talking about your personal experiences to the mafia, Don Diego. Uh, any time, sir. But, you know, I've, I've, I've run into certain different groups of people who come from different, different regions. So, yes, I may have met several criminals, Dan, but that's a different podcast for a different time. But, but you get the concept there, though, right? The, absolutely, I, absolutely, yeah. yes. And there's a, there's a whole genre of that. That's the whole um, alternate uh, history or alternate, um, uh, alternate real world genre where you take the period in history and you say change some things like the big question always is is what if so what if the uh, romans actually found dinosaurs and then you throw that in there and like the roman legionaries riding dinosaurs look actually quite cool i'm actually all for that idea and, you know, we're kind of tying around. I have a couple of bullet points I wanted to hit. We're kind of uh, skipping over the, the Genesis point and kind of getting to another one of the important points on here, which is having things make logical sense and allegories. So we only have our understanding of uh, our own histories and the maybe learned histories that we have. So what we'll tend to do is we'll tend to pull in my mafia uh, slash cartel case is we'll pull from either personal or learned experience that we have from our existence on this world. So... What's interesting is you bring up the alternate history route. Your world can, if it's an alternate history world, obviously can immediately pull from history and you can go, you know, the burning of Rome, which I, 44 CE. Well, what if during that burning of Rome, there was a fire giant that busted out of nowhere, like, right? Um, so that's something that you can obviously pull through if you're running an alternate history game. But if you're running like say, a fantasy or sci-fi game, completely you can make uh, an analogy or an allegory to anything modern or historical within your world because immediately as you do as such i i told i told uh, this on a separate podcast about kind of leaning into the cheesiness when you do as such when you lean into something that's a commonly known uh, trope or idea you do kind of half the world building for your people for your players 
And then when you switch it on its head or you throw in a new angle, you create this sort of freshness and uniqueness to you. So maybe my Il Muerta mafiosos are distinctly different because in their case, maybe they're all, um, maybe they all cannot speak. They're, they're a race of mutes who have to speak through this code of law, which is written and is strictly written because they, that's the only way they can express themselves. That's a different take on, you know, the idea of, of a mafia member. And what sort of uh, aspects come from a, a society of criminals who cannot speak? Well, you know, that, that, that opens up more questions and you figure it out from there. But I, I feel like you, you do you do the same thing where you're like, oh, I want this to be something like this thing I know from life. I want this to be like a Prussian type of scenario, or I want this to be a lot like, you know, French Revolution or, you know. It's funny that you say Prussian because I actually have a map of uh, a Prussian city uh, hanging on the wall right behind me because we were playing some uh, Cthulhu-style um, games in this uh, prototype Prussian city not too long ago. There we go, subconscious um, uh, information. I saw that, and then here it comes up in conversation. Yeah, um, yeah, and uh, the the whole trope thing is, I think, really important. You can call it tropes or um, whatever you like, but these little bits that you can throw in there, like adventure, ad adventurer culture, is one of the things. Like this, that a culture actually knows that there are bands of adventurers traveling around and and uh, solving crime cases and uh, fighting monsters, and that you can actually go to them and offer them some gold, and they will they will get things done for you this is one of the things that makes it really easy if that's in the culture there then hey if, if somebody came down your street looking like the usual group of player characters you would probably lock the door and hide in the basement but if you know hey these are adventurers they're out for adventuring and i have this i almost said this neighbor to take out i'm still stuck on your mafia example <laughs> Um, but if you have something to do for them, then you would actually go to them and be like, hey there, good that you're coming along. Yeah, and I think I think creating your world with your player characters in mind also is another thing. This this is where we do, I guess, tie back into what we can do with uh, novels and movies and games is we need to recognize whenever we're world building that this is still also a playground for your characters to be players in the world and change the world around you. What I, what I mean by this is there's certain scenarios uh, in which you will probably really badly want an event to happen or want a figure to seem like all powerful and omnipotent or untouchable, which totally makes sense in reality. There's figures who are at such a high level that you know we'll never uh, ascend to even being relevant to them or having an effect on them. But when you're running a game, you want to have the feeling for your players that they, while they are in the real world, that they can still aspire to and become, you know, important enough that they're rubbing shoulders or uh, rubbing elbows, excuse me, rubbing elbows with these figures are affecting the world around them. So when creating a, a, an army or a force or something like that, you also want to enable your players an opportunity to affect that world, even if it's something that, like, if they're beginner characters or just starting their campaign out, they're not going to behead the king. That's going to be almost impossible to do. You know, that's, But if they can, let's say, find out about a conspiracy to behead the king, if you know that's what their inclinations are for, then they feel like they're part of the world, which, one, makes, obviously, your game experience better. But also, like, remembering at the end of the day, and I, I guess I should start this with my Genesis point, first, you know, point I had on my... Uh, uh, document over here is uh, regardless of your genesis, remember you're playing a game, which is ultimately remember that you want to create uh, scenarios into which your players can accomplish really cool fucking things. Yes, and you should always tie in your campaign building and your world building 
with each other which with each other um so if you if you have the genre set then you should think about okay do i want my players to move around and be in this adventure culture thing or um, do I want them to stay put in one place? Do they have a, an important place in society? Are they diplomats? Are they um, out there on the order of the king? Are they bandits? Are they whatever? And, and this has to, the, the kind of campaign you're playing and the kind of uh, world you're playing in do have to, to fit together like that. Yeah, and since we're kind of running with my mafia thing, like uh, I'll, I'll keep kind of playing with it. So if you guys decide, like, okay, we're gonna run a criminal game, kind of set in you know America, Italian mafia, so feel maybe alternate history too. Um, understand that, okay, if we're we're running with that game right now, you need to set up the basic uh, necessities of the world you live in, which is how does and and this I'm stealing from our, a friend of ours, Dale Kingsmill, an amazing vlogger uh, who we've known for quite some time. This is uh, the sperm method, which he created for this is for creating towns and cities. But I think this is great for world building in general, which is to think about your social, your political, your economic, your religion, and your military how all those things are involved sperm in the world around you. So if we're talking mafia, Okay, there's a social order. There's a status there. There's political implications. Is the are these people paying off politicians? Are they involved in the local um, politics and and running maybe the municipal uh, services or running you know drug fronts through that economic? Hey, there's our drugs. There's our money. How are they getting paid? How are they financing the things that they're doing? While they're doing as such, is there any tie to religious aspects? Like you, you have to start kind of thinking in this sort of like branching aspect. Of as soon as you talk about one thing. You think how that connects to another thing and another thing and another thing. That's part of, I think, the importance of world building as well is before anything begins, if you start going like, welcome to city, uh, uh, let's call it New Haven. Welcome to New Haven. This is a brand new city you guys are going to have your adventures in. Well, what's New Haven about? Start hitting up these main kind of principles. I would add flora and fauna to that whole equation because if you, for example, have dragons in your world, that makes a big difference. And I would also um, add magic and technology because uh, if you have like steampunk technology, that obviously changes a lot. And also if you have magic, that influences how your world works. Like, for example, you mentioned um, uh, cultures and st such things. If you have like ley lines and, and um, um, places of power in your world, then obviously the elves, which is like the high power magic user group um, will have their capital at one of these ley line crossings and in, in uh, at a place of power and they will be really really powerful there but maybe less powerful everywhere else in the world and so while it seems like a daunting list of points you have to work through it actually helps you because it, it interlocks and, and gives you these these brilliant things to work with like okay why is there a trade route there okay um, maybe that's where the least dangerous animals are and maybe that's where a ley line is and magic power is up there and things like that yeah and that actually ties to like what i mentioned early on my second approach which is a more structured approach is a similar to approach to sperm where i'm literally thinking about all these aspects as it's flowing through me i have to think about okay why does this tie to this that that to religion to military but what's funny is when, when you mentioned that the other positive thing I give to anybody who's world building is as soon as you create any sort of kernel of an idea, a concept. So I'm going to keep running with the mafia thing today because we're on that today. 
if all of a sudden, let's say in our if, if in our you know New Haven City, uh, set in let's say the 1920s, right, the Roaring Twenties with a, a, a burgeoning mafia uh, influence, if all of a sudden there happened to have been a giant massacre, a giant incident that happened between rival gangs, you know that there's going to be descendants of that massacre who either lost people who fought in that massacre. So what do they come from it? Do they come as jaded, paranoid, worried? Do they stay away from a certain part of town because of that? And if they're staying away from a certain part of town, that means that they're not going to eat at their uh, establishments or visit their uh, barbershops and things like that. So now you have a divide in the people immediately right off of that. And as that's happening, does the police go over to that part of town or do they know that's a place they need to stay away? So there might be a low police uh, uh, place, uh, sorry, a low p- police presence in that t- part of town because that's where that battle happened and that's where there's this debated territory. So they, the, as soon as you start talking about that, you start thinking about how that ties into the world around it. It starts to make sense. And, you know, what, what the name of the place might be, um, let's say, Redwood, but everybody calls it the the Bloody Wall because that's where the massacre happened and that's where the blood, the bodies and the blood and everything was. was. So now you have a slang. There's that, that immediately giving a slang or a local's name to something makes it feel like a legitimate place. Because when you speak to your group in character, you should actually not be uh, this giant exposition wheel. Exposition should feel natural. So one of the things that I was taught um, a, a while ago about when speaking about my world, uh, world building wives, I forget which GM I, I picked this up from, was the idea of not saying like, Oh, are we talking about uh, Red Red Square? Oh, you mean the place in which the massacre happened in 1914 between these two gangs and stuff like that? Is no to speak about it in such minimal terms as if you were casual. Like, yeah, I'm not going to go over to the uh, to, to the Bloody Wall. Yeah, uh, not not a cool place. You know, with those types of people. What do you mean those types of people? Oh, you know, you know the, you know the, and he kind of looks around. You know the the rifle gangs that are happening over there. I mean, I don't even want to see, be seen in the wrong barbershop. Yeah, get me out of there, pal. I don't need that. That's way better world building than just hitting somebody with a bunch of facts you wrote down on a document. Yes, and that is one of the, the um, boxes I always check when I'm world building or on what scale um, whatsoever uh, is history. Um, history is, is what influences what is now, and it can be a great explanation of things, and it can also help you like when we were talking about the uh, the, the Romeo and Juliet thing, um, that if you know the history that the both two families have, or if you know the history that the gangs have, then it will help you create reactions to unforeseen ideas, and that is just a, an enormously important and and very very strong tool in your in your toolbox as a game master. Yeah, one event ripples so far and so deep. Like that one hypothetical massacre we carry uh, created, or the fact that like the warring families, the Montagues and the Capulets in, in Romeo and Juliet, like that event in of, of itself can have you write almost an infinite amount of stories because you already you already have a us versus them. You already have preconceived notions. You have a, a city and a setting as to where this battle and things can happen, and interpersonal dynamics between like a Mercutio as opposed to a Romeo as opposed to a Juliet. Like <clears throat> when you have any sort of large event. And, and one of the important things I have in my uh, world building is uh, events. There has to be in whatever society you create, if you create rules, if you create districts, if you create anything like that, there has to be a history. So there has to be defining events. Typically, the most defining events in all world building are either Genesis or some sort of inception or creation story, be it for your town or your world or religion. And then the other most important events I have are, and that's a whole uh, bullet war 
You cannot, I, I feel like you cannot talk about world building without the concept of combat and war. And that's also one of the biggest things that you can draw your world building from. How people do war, what they view about war, um, how often are they at war, and what wars are happening currently and how it affects the people around you. Because I think, this is just me getting a little sociological, psychological, I think war is uh, is almost a, as natural a state of being a human as is breathing and as is any of that. Well, to get back to the Prussians, uh, war is the continuation of politics with different means. And what that means is there is, well, what that also means is if your politics stop working and stop being effective, you have to resort to war to get what you want, which is the meaning that is usually quoted. But also there's a after the war and there's a during the war. And so wars have consequences uh, way beyond uh, why we started them. We have to live with the people that we waged war against. So that's the usually overlooked part of that quote. Um, so uh, it, it, there are consequences to that. And if it's if you if you look at politics and and war, as, especially in, in like the rougher societies that we usually play in fantasy setting or even sci-fi settings, then. I have lost my point. <laughs> it's, it's okay. It's okay. We're talking about it's usually about power dynamics. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. So the the you know war uh, my more comments actually you you probably hit it better in, at a more um, distilled thing. There's always the, the the fight over power, the fight over dynamics of resources, over political power, even physical power at times of of being physically stronger than someone than else. There's constantly going to be a power uh, struggle, a power flux. So when creating world building, start considering power influence. And this, you know, will tie back into all the, the kind of aspects of sperm, even religion as well, where how much power does this thing exert, does this organization or this person exert? So one of the things I picked up on recently, actually, when I ironically went to a wedding, was uh, I had religions in my world, but because of my own kind of, I guess, uh, predisposition to a sort of secularism or the, the way I, I look, religion was there, but it was like, oh, sure, you know, it's, we believe in these religions, we're polytheistic society, some religions are, have more followers than others, but I didn't realize just how strong of a sense of uh, self people come from religion until I went to a very religious wedding recently. And I heard the phrase God being uttered almost every third or fourth word. And I realized, like, you know, if you were in a very religious part of town, if you really believed in a religion, so much more of your life would be determined, your dress code, your daily routines, how many times a day do you pray, how often do you pray, when do you go to pray, what are you allowed to eat, what are you allowed not to eat, are you allowed to be part of military service, or can you not hail anything other than your God? Like, all this sort of stuff, ironically, I was picking up from being at a wedding, I was like, this is amazing world-building material, because... If if this if I want to have a world where I have true uh, like uh, actual realistic religions, I need to take the consideration of this kind of concept of how much deeper religion is than just something you pray to or something you check on a, on a, a census. It actually determines a lot of who you are. So if you have a very powerful religion in your world, if you and. I, I guess we're, we're, I've, I've now started improving a mafia uh, world-building exercise in New Haven. So if our people happen to be very Roman Catholic and very strong, how important is church and religion and their religion? And can they have wives out of wedlock? Is that, you know, what, what's, what do they feel about sex out of marriage? Is prostitution a big thing because of this repressed sexual desires? Like now, now damn it, Dan, you've got me building a world. Um, well, I'm not going to apologize for it. 
So um, in the town where I live, um, we do have a bunch of tourism. So before you go grocery shopping, you usually check the uh, the tides because uh, when there's no water there, all the tourists will be shopping too, and you don't want to go there. Um, and that is one of the big influences that that is just here, just because we are at the coast of the North Sea and we do have tides. And uh, with religion, I've heard something very similar. Um, when you're in Iran, you really want the prayer app on your phone, even you, though you're not praying, because um, you have to be already in the grocery store when prayer time starts, because they will close it down. And you can usually in the more liberal uh, grocery stores there, you can you can do your shopping while everybody is praying and then check out after they are done praying. But if you're outside when when prayer starts, they will just let, not let you in. So be the tides or be it religion, but that's really important uh, to to how your world feels and how it lives. And it can give you a, like an exotic touch if you want it on the on the minor scale or be like a very 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 uh, defining element of your campaign too yeah so like you know bull, uh, one of my bullets here i have is about making your world feel lived in and dan hit the nail on the head there with something as small as you know you can't enter stores during prayer time that makes your world feel real because i think the the thing we'll run into a lot of times as game masters is you want to create a big gigantic world which you want to give your players an opportunity to explore so whenever they get some sort of means of transportation spaceship horse and buggy teleportation spells whatever it is eventually they will want to explore your world as is their right and as is your right to want to show off all your toys but what makes meridian city different than adina different from aberic different from katha all these are different city names but just by virtue of their names doesn't mean they're anything different so if Meridian City is, is a, a port city, you better have a lot more seafood. You better have a lot more people paying attention to tides and, you know, the cycles of the moon and what's happening with the weather around them. Because that's very important as it's probably going to storm or rain uh, very often. Or if you're living in Edina and you're the most religious city, people are very, very conscious of what they're eating and what they're saying and which direction they're in because maybe the religion dictates you pray in a certain direction. All these things are very small when you think about it. Having a shop not closed during prayer, having people look up and go, ah, looks pretty sunny today. Ah, it's rather warm. It's been pretty uh, stormy the past couple of days. Why would you say that? If, if you lived in Meridian City, that's important. That small aspect gives you an idea of this culture and that makes it feel like a real place. And you can see, you mentioned it with your tourism thing, like anybody who's lived anywhere and then moved to another place, people speak differently. People think differently. Atlanta and Los Angeles, I find are very similar because we always talk about traffic all the time because our traffic is horrible. I never hear that complaint from somebody from Montana because they don't have traffic. That's what makes your world real. Yes, absolutely. Very much. Um, I've got uh, one other thing in terms of religion, because in um, in fantasy worlds and even in, in science fiction worlds, um, oftentimes there's no such thing as belief. There's a thing as worship and knowledge, because gods are real and like demonstrably real. There are priests who can actually do um, kind of magic, but powered by the gods. So. There's this concept, I think I've mentioned that before, of um, that, that the GURPS system actually builds gods with uh, maintenance, uh, the, the uh, disadvantage. So you have to have a certain um, amount of people maintaining you by worshipping you. And the concept is also in American gods that uh, gods that are not being worshipped kind of 
degrade to something mere like a mere human and um, that's a really interesting thing because um, if you want your powerful paladin army to to uh, do anything you actually have to be in an area where there are people worshiping so uh, if we go back to power structures and go back to war if you want your epic paladin army to to pillage uh, the the surrounding uh, nation states then you actually have to send missionaries first to gain enough of a following for your gods so that your paladin magic will even work. And that all these things right now, tying back to RPGs, because remember, we are not novelists. We're not film creators. We are game masters. We are enablers. As soon as Dan told you that story about sending out the missionaries, that could be a mission. That could be a, an adventure. That could be a session right there about if you happen to be playing religious characters, going out to people who do not know your religion and trying to convince them of what your God and your worship is like. Or if you're playing those paladins, your mission could be to go out there and crusade or your mission could be to go out there and take the land from the heathens. Like Every time you write something added to your story, you enable your party more adventures. You enable your party to have more fun. So when you're writing these things, also take into consideration at any time your party will want to interact with these things. And that's a good thing. That should make you excited as, as it makes me excited. Because with my mafioso, if I know big fat cat Tony is the guns runner guy, but he has an affinity for pasta, and I happen to know a really good pasta maker, that might be in my end to getting all the illegal guns and getting my, my, my soldiers and my men uh, stocked up on arms if I know big fat cat Tony. So as soon as you create any bit of lore, as soon as you create any sort of thing like that, you're also giving yourself an avenue for your players to have more fun and more adventure. Just imagine the player characters being the missionaries who um, spread the word of their god because they actually think it's the best god and everybody should believe in this god because that's just best for the people. And you're like, you're a nice guy and you're not a missionary because you you think everybody's a sinner and needs to be needs to be cleaned, cleansed by fire or whatnot. But because you're actually a nice guy and want people to learn about this amazing new religion that's actually going to make their lives better. And then you find out the main reason you were sent there politically was so that uh, followers can be up and they can actually wage war, which you are actually against because war is a bad thing. That is a is a really, really deep campaign right there. Yeah. Also, like when you're doing world building, you know, the thing I made from the very beginning is you don't have to actually have set in stone the history and you don't have to have everything figured out. Bullet points is what I use a lot before I ha before I ever have to really go in depth with a story or a tale. I'll have my bullet points and my like, small write up as to the idea of what the area is like. And then if only my characters decide specifically to go to a place where I to completely expand and shell it out, uh, fill it out. So that missionary quest, that missionary adventure could be something like you could spend a long amount of time learning about a local culture and then teaching and then turning the people and making them see your way and then dealing with people who are dissenters or don't have a, a, a particular like towards any new religions or new influences and foreigners. And like that whole process is a microcosm of what is probably your world's entire uh, mission, or uh, I keep saying mission, your world's entire purpose, which is to bring this new religion to this land for possible conquest or for possible expansion or salvation come the apocalypse or Armageddon. But your job isn't, to remember, to have to tell them a story. Your job is to enable them to have fun. If they want to do that thing, that small mission, that could be your game for a year. 
a year and a half could be just that gaining their trust because also remember because we're game makers we're we're, we're game players sorry uh and not novelists we can expand and we can dilly dally as much as we want we don't have a plot we don't have a two and a half hour time limit to run we have technically infinity as long as the game wants to keep running so make these minutia seem so important and interesting and that's already in and of itself going to make you so much easier uh, make your job so much easier because if 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 and i i feel like i'm getting the long in the tooth so my point is ultimately is only make the world as big as it needs to be if your players want to play in a small local town working on community problems then that's as big as your world needs to get you only have to expand if they really really want to make the the headways and changing all the politics of the world around you. I think it's my ultimate point. Yeah. So the many many scenarios, most of the world has already been built for you. There is already the the layout of the map, and we should talk about maps next because that's a such a classic and important world building tool. But the layout of the map is already there. You already know the main religions. You already know who the rulers are. You already know which fantasy races there are. You already know what the magic level is. And you basically only, in big air quotes, um, have to have to concentrate on this little stretch of this world and fill it with people and, and all of that. And you can draw from, from all these uh, things that are already set up for you. And well, if you then feel like they are less helping you and more restricting you, then you get to build your own world and, and build your big, big world. And don't be afraid to topple it over because that's what you have it for. It's your playground. And if you want to uh, take the garden hose and flood your sandbox, then do that. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, we are here to uh, have fun. And what that means is taking it apart and building it back up sometimes. And what, what I really love about um, world building and, the, you know, tying back to another one of these points I, uh, I have a little bit written down here is my, you mentioned the map and visuals are so, so important. I think because um, most RPGs, unless you're playing with a graphic interface like like an app or uh, some sort of program that you're all playing on, uh, we're living in a, a theater of our minds, right? So another thing that creates the verisimilitude, the um, suspension of disbelief, the belief in the world around you, is visuals. So if you can, if you have a map that you can look off of, and then maybe explain or visuals that you can look off of, and then explain to your characters, your players what the world is like visually, uh, taste-wise, sensory uh, sensory sort of things like smell, the taste, the salt water of the nearby port, the stench of the swamp, or the um, miasma of the, 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 the battlefield after a, a gigantic war. Like all these things make your world uh, that much stronger and that much better. And that's something you should write down maybe two or three points about just like clean, dirty, or, uh, you know, smell of seawater because close to uh, coast or smell of sewers because great, like all these things, just small aspects, because ultimately world building is just an accumulation of small things making a bigger thing. So even small things are sensory to be like, they go for a sort of Tudor style housing versus here it's way more Pueblos and Western uh, United States, like that's, that's more stuff that you can add to your world as well.
yeah, and it, it really helps to draw the map and then um, attach some pictures to it, like uh, in your mind or even on the on the map. I work completely digital nowadays. I have like this little right in the rain pad where I uh, scribble down names and things like that. Uh, but that's about it. And I usually just Google whatever I'm I'm looking for, and I'm like, okay, this looks uh, like the Bar California, so I would just. Google Barcapa, California, and if I find a picture, I will just throw it in there. I'll be like, okay, this is here. Um, this looks like the Himalaya. Okay, so this is here. And then in between there, what's what's there? And I need a big river. Okay, uh, let's go with the Rhine, maybe. And then I throw it in there. And maybe if it doesn't fit, then I can change it out later. And yeah, so this gives you a really good skeleton structure of to work with. And don't try to overdo it, as, as you said. Keep 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 there some keep some um, niches of your world where Schrödinger's ogre can actually hide. And uh, if you need there to, to be a small town uh, over the next hill that is not really a village that is not really on the map, then just let it be there. Uh, don't you should always when you have a map or something like that you should always start with well this is a rough map it's like you know how fantasy maps are you know how maps in medieval times were i'm not saying that you can take a, a tape measure to this thing and actually figure out how long you will travel from one town to another because they may have gotten it wrong yeah you are and, also introducing uh aspects of uh the game to where you can have your players call you out for inconsistencies and break your world building break your immersion so when you ever i i will i can't i cannot support dan's comment more than enough than i can now it's like never ever explicitly tell your player just like everything is drawn to scale this is all that exists this is all there is you can say something like oh it, roughly this this is these are the major th cities these are the major points of interest these are the you know roughly what this place is like but never say something is totally like that because you rob yourself the opportunity of making something up uh, on the fly if it will help you out or if it'll make the game more interesting so whenever in introducing an area um, you can always say like it's mostly this, but I hear there's, you know, dissenters, or it's mostly that, but there's a little change in the landscape or a little, you know, potential for something different. Because having that single thread, that single uh, lifeline is so huge for us GMs because our players will lose that sense of immersion as I've done before when I've given them a map to be like, well, why is these two cities only four days away and these cities are seven days away? And if I put my finger on the map and I go, it's an approximation and you don't notice that there's like 14 different towns and there's a raising in the elevation, which slows down your progress. And like you, you kind of need that as a game master. Yes, very, very much. Um, and uh, since we are talking loosely about maps all this time and have mentioned a bunch of things, um, I think the the first world building pretty much everybody does without any nudging from the outside is drawing a map. Like, this is where you are, this is where other things are, and this is what's in between. Yeah, I, th I think also the importance of like just also f just telling cardinal directions to your characters because we all are playing in the uh, the uh, theater of the mind. So like as soon as you start giving yourself like cardinal directions and an idea of where p places are at, that's that feeds into this cycle we keep kind of talking about of how having things make sense and connecting to like if these people are north of these uh, this important let's say river, like okay, that would affect them because, you know, being so far away from the river, maybe they're 
less more likely to be populated because they have less access to water so maybe do they have ponds they have streams do they have lakes nearby like something simple as like i know north south east west what's there what's what's not that's also like a you're right the first thing we do as as uh, dms gms but b is again that feeds into this ultimate uh, goal of creating this world and getting you inspired because that's all we're trying to do is get you inspired and it makes your world more believable. I, I'm not trying to use the word realistic here because realism is not what we really strive for. But usually if you move in a cardinal direction, like in the Northern Hemisphere, North is getting colder and South is getting warmer. You can have something like that. It doesn't have to be like it, but um, it, it really helps you that uh, climate changes with uh, with the distance you travel and the weather changes uh, when you're close to the mountains or if you're close to the sea. Yeah, I made this joke with Aiden Chan. I think that everybody has their desert land. Everybody has their ice, you know, fortress, Nordic inspired thing. Like, I think we all want, we all like spice. We all like variety. And um, you know, if your world wants to have that spice and variety, more than anything, uh, note those differences in a map or note those differences in your descriptions. When you're doing even simple traversal from town to town by buggy or by space, uh, spaceship or something like that, saying how the galaxies change and the the, the, the mixtures of stars and the, the dust cast a different view or the terrain looks different color-wise and things like that. like These are things that are very important, these small things that accumulate uh, towards a larger and more important uh, world. Dan, I'm going to ask you real quick because we've been kind of shooting the shit back and forth and we're like kind of all over the spot. Do you have any more like specific things you wanted to talk about? I'm already going through my list. We've talked about most of the things I've put down here. Um, we didn't really mention top-down world creation or bottom-up world creation. We have, we have talked about it a little bit. Whatever you decide to do, um, leave the, the feedback path open. So if you are doing this top-down um, world building where you're like, okay, my world is like this big and it's these climate zones and this is the general map and these are the main religions and these are the trade routes and all of that, leave room for something to happen in the game that then inspires what, uh, th that then changes your world in, in, in the ways that we have mentioned before. And the other way around, if you are uh, working your, your way up from, hey, you wake up uh, on a bright morning in your hotel room and uh, you, you just make up everything from from there and as you go along, then there will be times where it's really better to sit down and do some top-down work and be like, okay, this is like the family tree of this important family. And uh, as we've mentioned before, it's it's never strictly top-down or bottom-up. Yeah, nothing is ever, I think, always 100% one or the other uh, in, the, in this sort of binary example. But uh, I find the improvisational aspect of me loves sort of the world manifesting itself through necessity. So... While I did kind of do a more top-down approach when I started my Monday campaign, which has been going for three years now, um, where like I had a weekend and I had to like I, I made twelve cities and I made a map. I made a map very quickly, like hand-drawn, which I eventually then uh, cemented into a map-making um, program. Which uh, again, this is goes back to like the mistakes you make early on. Uh, I, I give that map to the people, and then they're like, "This is these distances don't make sense." And that's where I've ever always said, every time you get a map, it's an approximation. <laughs> but oh, no, one of the things I, I found as I actually progress more and more and more is I love the idea of, uh, like I said, manifesting the world through necessity. 
uh, going back to this thing about like if you you want to keep uh, the players in a small world if they want to play a small game, if your character wakes up in the morning and goes, "Damn man, I look uh, really rough. I need a, a haircut." Oh, your uh, haircuts was probably uh, Bobby Barber off of Broad Street uh, is the per- perfect way to go there. But uh, right this morning there was a crash on the way there, so you kind of get held up. And as, as you're waiting, you see uh, a lot of kids who are parading around the streets with. Um, and you're like, why these aren't kids, why aren't these kids going to school? Like, as I'm speaking to you right now, right, I'm justifying the world out of necessity. If I I'm not ready with what Barbie the barber like, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go back and, and explain to you everything I just did right there. I said you need a haircut, right? So I gave you a barber shop, Bobby the Barbers, and I told you it was at a place on Broad Street. Street. I'm creating a world. I'm creating the, the reality that there's a physical address. I don't know what the place is like yet, so I create a traffic jam for you in the middle to stall you out. As I'm having this traffic jam happening, I'm giving myself more feeder time to create Bobbies and what's his personality like. And I explain, you notice a lot of kids are out on the street for some reason. You're like, wait, why aren't these kids in school? Here's a reason, a justification for this traffic jam. You know, these kids were crossing because it's an, a, a holiday or something and nobody saw them. And then, boom, traffic crash happens. Kids are all around the, 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 the traffic site. As you're creating this world, this is what's exciting to me. I literally have to make the, all this stuff step by step by step by step on the, the point. And because I've been playing RPGs now for quite some time, I'm good at this. I'm, I'm bold enough to say I'm good at this. This is the type of world building you can do also if you're somebody who does not like structure. You know, going back to bottom up, top down. If you don't like having everything done for you ahead of time, this is another approach you can take. Literally play and then write this shit on the fly as you're making it up, taking notes and justifying the world later. So finally when you get to Bobby, who he's, he's, he's pretty much almost completely bald. He's got only white hair on the sides. You put him at probably mid-50s, but he's got a warm demeanor and he's got his wall plastered with all the famous people who have come through, uh, you know, J- Jackie Osborne and you see uh, uh, Big Don over there. Like, uh, you know that he's uh, kind of a part of this community and people love him so much. Boom, right there. You've created a character, you've created an address, you've created a feeling, you've created, like, there's your, there's another approach to world building you can do. Yeah, you should very much embrace these, uh, these uh, game nights where nothing happens, quote unquote. Um, I think I've mentioned my first game night uh, last time when everybody was just out going shopping and stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, okay, but we have to do this mission, don't we? No, we don't. So, um, if if your player characters arrive in a new town, let them go do touristy things. Let them do. Let them see the the. I don't know what the big cathedral and the the merchants' quarters and uh, well, you've already established because you are thinking about like uh, power struggles and things like that. You've got the big map established and you know, okay, there's like iron mines over here and they produce a really high quality iron here. Of course, there will be like. Uh, weaponsmith, blacksmith, uh, everything here, and um, there will be a lot of them. So, how do they differentiate from each other? Um, well, they make these miniature models of their of their weapons and of their of their armor, so you can see, and they put them out on the streets for you to see and to to fiddle with it. And uh, yeah, so now you've created this thing where everybody this will not be the town of uh, whatever Celestria. This will be that's the queen of the my little pony but okay but this will not never be the town of celestria it will be the town where they make the tiny armor yes and yes give him a hook give him a hook give him a hook is so important and and back to like the thing we talked about where like in character world building your characters uh should probably have a realish reaction to most places 
where you go into a new place, you're like, what the hell is this town about? What are these people about? How is this place different? You really don't live in a world where, um, you know, relating to reality to our, our, our world building, you really don't live in a world to where you just show up in a completely strange land and immediately just go do the job and come back. You look around, you observe, you try to see what's different. You look at the culture, the culinary aspects, you look at you know, the music they listen to, the slang they use. So I think any sort of time you introduce your party to a new world, a new species, a new people, there's totally great justification for just an entire session or three of just walking around and drinking and shopping and talking and understanding why do they speak like this? Why, why does nobody ever use the term you and me? Why do they always say I and I? Oh, because of how they're a perception of the universe is and how we're all a part of one ultimate being. So we're all I and I. Like, again, that's something I take from a kind of Jamaican uh, religious culture, but like, that's different. That's something that can be a whole session learning about that aspect of the people. You know, why are they uh, all vegetarians? That's another thing because you don't want to harm uh, any sort of animal life in your entire life and you only give what the world, nature feeds you and provides you with. Like, again, that ties back into politics. That ties back into religion. If you just say something, say something about a place that's different and then you can start justifying it, it starts feeling real. And then once you can start justifying it, you'll the rest will kind of fall into place. And if you have things that are special about places, don't feel afraid to um, use it in terms of game mechanics and rules too. If a city is at a really high elevation, then and you can talk about uh, how your characters feel exhausted all day as much as you want. It won't really click with your with your players. Usually, nobody will say, "Well, I will rather avoid this brawl because I'm I'm too tired for it." Just subtract some fatigue points, and there you are. Then they will feel it as their characters feel it. Yeah, make make the otherness evident. Make the yes. differentness obvious. Like, if you're the only, let's say you're a bunch of elves, you're a party of elves, and you go into a dwarven city, you're going to be different. You are going to get stared at weirdly. You're going to hear, you know, maybe derogatory terms or there's going to be people who speak in only Dwarvish and you don't understand Dwarvish. You're like, why would they do that? Because they do not like you or trust you or don't want you to know what they're saying. As a, And that I love how you said that, making that a game mechanic too. If you're in a, a town where you don't understand what the proper terms of etiquette and manner are, make that a game mechanic to see like if you can pick up on that or else maybe you insult people when you go to shake with your right hand as opposed to your left hand. Or if you're in an elevated place or a really hot place, tell them you cannot be out in the sun for a very, very long time without getting into cover. Otherwise, you will start sweating and you'll be dehydrated or you'll, uh, you know, get burns or you'll get, you know, ultimately, eventually, you know, uh, have to deal with death or possibly or hallucinations. Like literally make your otherness evident and a part of the game. And that way, anytime they return to uh, the desert of Zevi, every time they return to the desert of Zevi, they know like, no, we need to cover up. We need to make sure we watch out for sandstorms or we stay out of the heat or we have some sort of water skins prepped and ready. Yes, um, the world should influence the, the characters and the characters should influence the world. And that's how it is. Yeah. I think that the one thing we haven't done because we've talked about all these big things is like, characters themselves so i thank you for kind of making that easy uh, segue for us dan when we're creating a world we've got organizations we've got events we've got gods we've got abilities we've got magic no magic science no science but ultimately the day-to-day -day interactions are going to be with characters so 
when creating characters, what are you thinking about? Because I actually have, uh, I, I have a, after you, you say something, I have a big point about the importance of static and simple characters, but go first. Well, it, it really depends on um, what kind of character, you know, what kind of role this character has to fulfill, fulfill. If it's a merchant or something like that, that, that is maybe of some importance, but uh, not uh, at this point, not planned to be part of the campaign, they might have like a quirk or a funny, uh, funny way to speak or, or or an accent, so that you know that they are from a foreign place. Or they will, they will have this thing where they try to tell you uh, to sell you something on top, like a quirk, and and that's about it. And if they become important later, then I can I can work with that and riff off from that. If I have important characters, NPCs, and this is kind of the core of my of my game, the NPCs and the yeah, the 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 uh, relationships between the NPCs um, and and what they do when the player characters don't do anything. I can actually I, I could play with myself the whole time and uh, have the player characters not not interact really, and there will still be things happening in the world. And uh, I usually take uh, somebody I know or somebody I um, a, a character from a TV show or from a book or something like that, and take like the framework from that character or uh, certain aspects of that that person, and um, add it into the into the um, the character. And it's it makes it really easy because I I know that person. I've maybe known them for years, and uh, so if something. Um, comes up and that I didn't really see coming that I can always just think okay what would this person have done and just have my character act in that way my NPC act in that way yeah and that kind of ties into the thing we were talking about like leaning into tropes and general understood kind of caricatures and figures like you want to come off as the valiant knights and you can create a character as such and they'll very immediately pick up on this person's kind of MO, their kind of method of operation and what they represent and who they are. Whereas if you if you go with the femme fatale trope, we all know the femme fatale trope of the very attractive, maybe spy with possibly a foreign accent, French or Russian or something like that, who's uh, also very cold and calculating and, and will seduce you but then take the information and shoot you in the head or leave you in the bed without anything at all left, right? Like that's the thing you can lean into as well whenever you're creating a character as a great kind of starting off point to get them immediately hooked and kind of attached to who the character is. Um, my point I was going to make about simple characters is uh, there's I've, I've always heard this in uh, novels and especially in movies where people felt like, oh, they're a flat character. They don't serve any other purpose than X or they're not a dynamic character. They don't serve any other purpose than Y. Um, that's not a bad thing at all. As a game master, your point is to provide this character. Uh, either a party or a group or friends of yours with a, a means to have a good time. So if there's a character that's purpose is to serve them to get from point A to point B, it's totally fine to have the blacksmith just be the blacksmith with minimal kind of um, attributes aside from maybe one or two things. And then later, if your characters decide that they continuously come back to this blacksmith who we're going to call uh, Samuel Stenson, if they keep going back to uh, Samuel Stenson's uh, forge, and they need assistance from him. After a while, you notice that uh, all all the uh, family actually names Samuel. Uh, so he's actually Samuel the uh, third. His boy, you know, the fourth is uh, out out back, uh, currently helping him out. Uh, you know, getting some materials and getting some wood to light the forge. And uh, then you find out that uh, they all have a iconic kind of birthmark on their right cheeks, and like all that stuff kind of comes in later. The the, the point is. 
your characters are to provide your players with things to interact with. And if their point is to get them from point A to point B or uh, learning some information, then don't sweat the heavy stuff. Keep it simple. Keep it forward. Maybe one or two aspects that will make them defining, like maybe a, a shirt or a lisp or a stutter. And then later, when your characters decide that they're interesting and worthwhile, then you can expand upon them and talk about their lives, their wants, and their desires and ideals. Because the last thing you want to do is try to force something on your players. As much as we talk about world building as, as giving your players this amazing uh, world to play in, you never want to feel like you're forcing or cramming things into them. And that might just be me, but I constantly have this thing where I've known, quote-unquote, somebody for years, and then I meet them in, under different circumstances and actually learn that there is this whole person behind what I have already known. And like like uh, if you meet colleagues that you've only known in the professional surrounding uh, privately, then uh, it's, it's of, of, of work, let's say that, um, then uh, it's, it's often this, you do this as a hobby. Okay. They would not have thought that. That's entirely my mistake. Yeah, my good friend Elias is an amazing cuddler. I thought he was just a straightforward, dry guy, but then we got to share a bed, and he's great with cuddles. No, but 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 no. Like on a serious point, you're you're right. Like that's reality as well. Like the the means in which you meet somebody, if this is a missive or uh, or a a, a letter, a messenger, or someone to give you a summons. You know, the means in which you mean them is very strictly professional and work related. So they consist of you know kind of being forward into the point and kind of static and dull about you need to do x and go but then if you happen to meet them when they're at home or out going for a drink at the local tavern and you find out they have a proficiency with you know playing cards and they do magic tricks left and right or they have an amazing operatic voice there you go that's that's where you can now expand on this amazing character you can create this world building tied around their voice in this local tavern that they keep playing at and the and he's kind of a local musician local hero that everybody loves so they love to hear him play on only fridays and saturdays because those are his days off like that's where this all starts kind of coming in so taking something simple taking something static and then if these players uh want to returning to it if they're interested in that character or if, or if the story services that place or world again that's huge and oh yeah please one more other thing i know the world is big and gigantic place and there's a million figures you can run into i actually vouch uh for the belief that the smaller the world is and the more often uh, characters come back into your world the better your characters will feel in that world because they'll forget names. They'll forget 16 different soldier names or 75 uh, different blacksmiths. But if they've run into a person two or three times in a city, that third, fourth time, there'll be like this familiar sense. And then, you know, if they hate the person, dread. Or if they like the person, hey, how you been? What you been up to? Let us tell you about our adventures or where we've been out to and stuff like that. Like you create that relationship by having less people, more opportunity for them to come back into their lives and things like that. Yeah, the the thing that you really need to do, and that's your job as a game master and also as a as a, as a player, um, is to uh, now that the world is there and it has been built, is to keep on building and, and kind of renovating it and, and making it your own. And that's the what I what I I think I meant with um, not blocking the the feedback channels. Um, if something needs to change in this world because it it, it has to become m more accommodated to to what you are than uh, what what the group is and what the campaign has become, then so be it. Yeah, 
I mean, we can probably talk about world building for another like 15 hours, but we're, as we're kind of getting towards the end of our one hour mark, we've talked about a lot of things. I just kind of want to come back to kind of a general point we're making here is if you decide to make the decision to world build, if you decide to make the decision to make something of your own, yes, there is a little bit of work you're going to have to do. But I think it's probably one of the most rewarding experiences to do if you do this with your characters in mind and also giving them the potential to uh, change the world and add to the world. Because once you've created that, you make a, a, a personal, uh, personalized fun experience for all those at the table. And you have something to, once the legwork is done, once the hard work is done, that you can come back to the well of over and over and over and over again. And for me now, having been you know at least three years into this with one world, with multiple continents, some that haven't been ever touched and some of them will never be touched because the, the prospect of always, you know, Schrodinger's continent, right? Um, the, the potential of the unknown is there. And I, I, I've been all the wiser and all the happier and more uh, thankful and gifted thanks to the experience I've had making my own world. And I just feel like a happier person because I'm creating. And I think creating is a good thing too. Yeah, recycle and reuse your words. Use the, um, the the things that other player characters, other groups, and other places have done as history um, and and points in in your world. I do know friends that uh, have been playing in kind of the same ever changing fantasy, usually fantasy worlds or even sci-fi worlds, um, for like. 10, 20, 30 years and um, everybody who knows them and who has been playing with them actually knows these worlds and it's really fun if you are like at a birthday party and you start, uh, you find out that there are a lot of other role players and then you start telling a story about you, what your group did and somebody else is like, that was you, we had to clean up the mess you created. Yes, yes, that's that, that's something that could be a topic in and of itself, but the interconnectedness of multiple campaigns or bringing your world back or letting your characters create a defining event in the history of your world creates this sort of localized, almost cult-like uh, cult -like, uh, experience to where you have the shared experience, the shared understanding of this world and this uh this this these concepts and these adventures and there's this community this weird sort of sense of community where you tell you know your other people like hey did you hear that they uh they were in meridian city on trade of soul you know when that festival happened they're like oh really who do they run into tyrellis bloodhaven and your players go oh i remember when we ran into him or oh what happened to him after we you know did whatever like that's so really really rewarding and one of the first one of the few things you can do that's just very unique as as a world builder is to have people get so get real rea reactions from your fake fucking world yes very much and it really gets interesting once you start sharing your word it gets uh, well it, it makes a lot of work because you actually have to write down stuff now and you actually have to figure things out that you wanted to leave kind of uh, nebulous but if you actually manage to get some other people in and, and they kind of take over for a few weeks and, and uh, GM the campaign on and, and create another bit of this world and then there's this area that this guy created and this area that that girl created and you already know that you will fit something else down here where somebody else will, will run a campaign and then it comes all together to the one big thing in this shared world. That's really amazing. Well, we're kind of at the end of our time. Thank you very much, Jan, uh, Dan, for joining me. I don't think this will be the last time I ever end up talking about world building, but if people want to find you on the internet or otherwise, what would be the best way? 
The best way is definitely Twitter um, at Evil Dan Wallace. And yeah, see me there. Thank you for listening to my RPG podcast, which you can find at Podbean and at iTunes. Just search my RPG podcast. If you want to send me an email, the email is my RPG podcast at gmail.com. And if you want to find me on Twitter, my handle is at classy underscore Don. Thank you for listening, and I will see you at the table. <laughs>